Morning, everybody. Um, do have that passage in front of you um, as I'm speaking. That would be really helpful. Um, I'm going to pray before we uh, look at it together. Heavenly Father, this morning, would your word be our guide and your Holy Spirit our teacher. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, before university, um, I took a gap year. And at the risk of being that bloke that tells everyone about his gap year for a long time, let me just tell you one story, um, which is that um, during my, my gap year, I, I will fill you in at some point. If we ever go to the pub together or have a coffee or something, I will fill you in on the full story, which I can assure you is riveting. Um, but it was, um, for me, a hugely formative time, particularly in my faith. It was probably the first time that as a kind of young Christian, I felt tangibly God had intervened in my life. And uh, it, was, it was the first time I felt a call to full-time Christian ministry. Um, and I would say God did stuff in my life in all sorts of ways. And as I say, I can fill you in on exciting details. I've got a, I've got a full photo book um, of me with hair in Africa. I mean, what's not to like? There was, um, there was uh, one story that I want to share with you this morning as we think about the work of the Holy Spirit. You'll have noticed in Acts chapter 19, there's a lot of mention of the Holy Spirit and, and, and all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Um, and I think this story helps a little bit. Uh, we, we, I was on an intensive kind of discipleship training course for eight weeks in Suffolk before being sent out to Niger to join some missionaries out there and, and kind of be on the mission field for a few months um, in Niger and Africa. And as part of this eight-week um, discipleship course thing, the group of us that were there ended up going to a, an evening meeting at a church in Ipswich, um, which, I, which I think met in a theatre or something. And it was one of those big kind of youth rally event things. And there was a guy on stage who um, was, was uh, claiming to have gifts of prophecy and healing. Um, and all sorts of people were going to the front to be prayed for and healed and this kind of stuff. And I, we, we were sat at the back uh, because we, we turned up late. Um, I, was, I was wearing a white Milton Ernest Garden Centre t-shirt um, because I'd been working at the Garden Centre beforehand. Um, and if I'm honest, I felt a little bit cautious and sceptical. I wasn't quite sure what was going on up front, but I wanted to believe it was of God. I didn't feel I had any particular need for healing, so I didn't go up front, at the front. And I just prayed silently in my head, um, Lord, I don't know if this is of you, but if it is, you're going to need to make it really obvious to me, because I want to believe, but I don't want to be manipulated. That's what I prayed in my head, pretty much, word for word. And 30 seconds later, I couldn't believe it, 30 seconds later, the guy on stage says, there's someone in the back row and uh, they're wearing a white t-shirt. And I looked along the row, and I was the only person in a white t-shirt. Um, and he, he said, God's got a word for you. And my jaw hit the floor, and I, I was genuinely excited. He said, uh, can you stand up, please? I'm standing up thinking, oh my word, this is amazing. And then, and he said, the Lord has given you gifts. And I'm thinking, great, thank you, Lord, that's good. And he said, he's given you gifts in business and finance. And you're going to make lots of money. And you need to use it for the glory of God. Now, I do believe God's given me gifts. But if you ask my wife <laughs> if, 
if he's given me gifts in finance and business, she will laugh in your face, as will any person that has ever met me. Um, and so I share that story with you because it, it's a bit of a confusing one for me. I, I don't really know what to make of it. I think God was operating by his Holy Spirit. But it, <laughs> something wasn't quite right as well. And I raise it because sometimes the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is difficult to discern and we need to be careful. Um, and it's also probably good to be honest about stories like that which aren't necessarily clean and easy to understand. Um, and I think we see something of those things going on in this passage in Acts 19. And what I hope as we get to the end of this passage is that we will have some parameters, not the only parameters, this is one little story, but some parameters to help us discern the work of the Spirit in our own lives and in the life of the church. Um, that's what I'm hoping. So there we are. You can tell me afterwards whether you think that was of God or something entirely different. Um, I'd be genuinely interested to hear your views on that. So, um, we're going to look at this passage, Acts 19, under two headings. The first is, the real gospel brings the real spirit. And the second, the real spirit brings real repentance. First, the real gospel brings the real spirit. So we're in Acts 19, but since, since chapter 17, where we left Paul in Athens with the philosophers at the Areopagus, if you remember that, he's been to Corinth, casually planted a church there, spent 18 months uh, teaching them the word of God. He then leaves Corinth to sail for Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And I love the little detail just before our passage in verse 18, uh, where we're told by Luke that he stopped off, that Paul stopped off at Centria before setting sail so he could have his hair cut off because of a vow he had taken. Now, I suspect it was a serious matter of conscience between him and God. It was almost certainly a Nazarite vow. Um, but I like to think he'd lost a dare. Um, and had to have all his hair cut off um, before going on the boat. He then spends some time in Ephesus, uh, then he scoots around to Jerusalem and Antioch before returning to Ephesus, which is where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 19. And in Ephesus, he bumps into what we're told are some disciples. And he asks them a great question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Perhaps he sensed something wasn't quite right and he wanted to dig a little bit deeper. And it turned out it was a good question because they hadn't even been taught that the Holy Spirit was a thing, was a kind of alive and kicking. Um, Pentecost had passed them by somehow. And then here's the crucial bit. Paul's theological antennas start kind of beeping around and he follows up by saying, well, what baptism did you receive? In verse 3, they say, John's baptism. And Paul says, ah, here is the problem. John the Baptist, you remember him from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the guy who prepared the way, he was Jesus' cousin. John was like the final Old Testament prophet, if you like. He kind of closed the seal of the Old Testament before Jesus brought in the new, the new covenant of the Spirit. And so these guys, these disciples, had stopped at John. They had his baptism of, of repentance, as Paul explained. But they didn't yet know the gospel of Jesus. They didn't know... Jesus. And so they didn't know anything of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul brings them up to speed. He tells them about Jesus. He baptizes them in the name of Jesus. Just note there the link between baptism and faith. And at that point, he lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So the real gospel of Jesus brings the real Spirit. So for us, if we want to experience the Spirit as we have been praying and and imploring God already this morning that we would, well, we need to come to Jesus. It's a really obvious thing to say, isn't it? 
But it is interesting to look at the amazing encounters that believers have in the book of Acts with the Holy Spirit and to see that nearly always it seems to be that they receive the gospel of Jesus and then the Spirit moves. So we come to Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus promises us that he will not leave us as orphans, but when we come to him in faith, will fill us with his Holy Spirit and he will equip us and strengthen us to be his witnesses. And so we won't experience the Holy Spirit at work if we have not come to Jesus as those disciples of John had not. So the first question to ask ourselves if we want to experience the Holy Spirit as these disciples of John did is have I come to Jesus? Sorry if that's a patronising question to ask you this morning as you sit in church. Perhaps you feel offended that I've asked you that. But it's absolutely fundamental to our relationship with God. Have I come to Jesus? Have we received the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord of all, that he is God in flesh, that he died for our sins, that he offers us forgiveness, that we no, lead to, no, lead, no longer need to fear death and judgment because he's defeated them both. He's taken our judgment. That is the gospel of Jesus. And when we receive it, Jesus promises us, promises us his Holy Spirit. If you want to talk about that afterwards, I would love to. That's what church is about. Before we move on and see what the Holy Spirit does in us, let's just pause and look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus. A little kind of excursion to Ephesus. I want you to notice two things. I think this is really interesting. He shares the gospel, we're told, first of all, in the synagogue. That is with the religious people, the Jewish people. And he then shares the gospel, when that becomes unpopular there, in a secular place, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I think of Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, uh, there you go. Turns out dinosaurs are in the Bible. Um, so he spends three months, once a week presumably, with the religious folk in the synagogue. And notice how long he spends in the secular space of the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Two years. Now someone has calculated, probably with a bit of guesswork, that those two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus probably add up to roughly 3,120 hours of lecturing and persuading and commending Christ in that secular space. 3,000 hours of gospel argument in a secular space. I find that quite astonishing. How does this apply to us? If you like, where we are now is the synagogue. It's the gathering of God's people and kind of churchy folk that are interested in stuff. You probably wouldn't be sitting here if you're not vaguely interested in hearing about God. Okay, we're the, we're the religious types in the synagogue. Notice the weight of where Paul spent his time in Ephesus. Paul preached the gospel to them, the religious folk, but but he, was spent, he spent two years and thousands of hours with the non-religious folk in the secular space. He used his mind, his, his gifts, his time, his talents to share the gospel of Christ with people out there. It wasn't emotionalism. He's reasoning with them. It wasn't churchy. He's in their space. It wasn't superficial. He spent thousands of hours. It wasn't a two-minute conversation. Now, you are not St. Paul, you may be glad to realise. You are not St. Paul, you are you, but God has placed you in a church and in a secular context, whatever that is, and he's given you gifts as he gave Paul gifts. And you spend, almost certainly, more time in that secular context than you do here in church. And I want to suggest to you this morning that's an opportunity. Ask God how to take it this morning as Paul did. But if you do that, be prepared for a battle. 
because it is spiritual warfare going on. And we see that in Ephesus chapter 19, verses 11 uh, onwards. There's some crazy stuff going on, which I'm excited to look at. And we see there, in verse 11 onwards, that the real spirit brings real repentance. And I love this bit. We get all the stuff with the miraculous stuff going on and all that kind of thing. You can see the spiritual battle here in Ephesus really, really clearly. Um, I remember when I was uh, ordained um, deacon and then priest, we had ordination retreats, pre-ordination retreats before each of those big services. And it was in Abbey House in Glastonbury. Don't know if you've been to Glastonbury. Pretty cool place. Um, And uh, being the cheeky ordinance that we were, we would occasionally, on an evening, nip out and go to have a pint at a local hostelry in Glastonbury. Just a few of us. Um, Tim Buckley was amongst them, those of you who know Tim. and we would walk down Glastonbury High Street, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but I wasn't alone in feeling a real sense of spiritual heaviness and spiritual darkness in that place. It, it seemed to be a place where the spiritual battle was very, very obvious. And, and a few of us felt compelled to stop and to pray against that kind of sense of, of darkness. There, are, there seem to be places like Glastonbury where the spiritual battle is very real. And I think Ephesus, at the time that we're reading about here, was the same. Um, So you you, you see God doing amazing things through Paul. So look at verses 11 and 12. Luke describes these as extraordinary miracles. So this isn't just, you know, your average miracle. These are extraordinary miracles that 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 God is doing through Paul. So his his handkerchief or his sweatband and his his apron that he uses probably to, to make leather tents with Priscilla and Aquila. These things, someone's kind of nicked them from him or something, and they, they are healing people. It's a bit like that story with the, the, the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, who touches the hem of Jesus' robe and is healed without Jesus even realizing it to begin with. And this is happening through Paul. Bits of clothing that, stopped, that touched him is happening. These are extraordinary miracles. God is very much at work by his spirit. Here is a spiritual battle going on, but the devil, we see, pushes back. So here's the battle. There are some guys, um, these um, sons of Sceva, I think they're called, and they're kind of hoaxing the spirit. Did you see that in that story? They don't believe in Jesus, but they want the power of Jesus. And so they, they try to drive out demons in the name of Jesus. They say, uh, it, the, Paul whom Je- the, the Jesus whom Paul preached. And they try and drive it out. doesn't work. They get thoroughly beaten up. And we're told somewhat gleefully by Luke that they fled the house naked and bleeding. Such was the beating they received. And somehow I can imagine that happening in Glastonbury. I don't know why, but here we are, the links between Ephesus and Glastonbury. So the spiritual battle is raging. God is on the move, but the devil's pushing back. How do we then spot the real work of the spirit amidst that battle? Look what happens, end of verse 17. The name of Jesus was held in high honour. The Spirit will always glorify Jesus. So when the Spirit is at work, Jesus' name will be lifted high. So to receive the Spirit, we come to Jesus. And as we receive that Spirit, that Spirit will put the spotlight back on Jesus. And if that is not happening, it is almost certainly not the work of the Spirit of God. We come to Jesus, we receive the Spirit, and that leads us to praise Jesus more and more and so on. And not just when we first come to faith, but that is our our ongoing experience of discipleship with Jesus and receiving his Spirit. We come afresh to Jesus, we ask for his Spirit, and we're pointed back to the loveliness of Jesus. 
That's, if you like, the dynamic of the spiritual life with Jesus. What else then? What else is the real work of the Spirit? Verse 18, look at this. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls and burned them publicly. The value of those scrolls was 50,000 drachmas. Some commentators have suggested that the rough equivalent of 50,000 drachmas, I've no idea if this is correct, to be quite honest. But trust the commentators, they've done more work on it than me, probably. About 10 million pounds, apparently. It's a serious sum of money. It's a serious sum of money. What is going on there? Why are we being told that? Well, the Spirit of God is at work lifting high the name of Jesus and bringing conviction of wrongdoing. These guys that bring those scrolls were involved in dark sorcery stuff, which is against God and part of evil, if you like. And instead of thinking, oh, I'll stop doing that, I'll sell my scroll, pocket the cash, and jobs are good and they say no I've, I've got to turn my back entirely on that I cannot benefit from these scrolls these so-called magic scrolls and they publicly burn them as a sign of repentance say this is not me anymore this is not who I am it's not it's not a case of feeling a bit guilty and saying a quick prayer of sorry to God and cracking on this is real heartfelt repentance that you're seeing with this public burning of scrolls it's costly repentance and that is what happens when the Spirit of God is at work in 1907 you might know this story In 1907, I'm told, in Pyongyang, Korea, missionaries and Korean Christians had been praying for years for a revival and an outpouring of God's Spirit in that country. And apparently, on one Saturday night in 1907 in Pyongyang, it happened. As one missionary described it, this is what he said, the sound of many praying at once brought not confusion, but a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a mingling together of souls moved by an irresistible impulse of prayer. The prayer sounded to me like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. It was not many, but one, born of one spirit, lifted to one Father above, just as on the day of Pentecost. God is not always in the whirlwind, neither does he always speak in a still small voice. He came to us in Pyongyang that night with the sound of weeping. As the prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience. Over on one side, someone began to weep, and in a moment, the whole audience was weeping. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. It's quite an intense account of what happened, but we get a flavour of it. The Korean church saw revival after that and I think was being equipped at that point to withstand the awful pressures that the 20th century would bring in Korea and still today the church in Korea is bearing fruit from that outpouring so the Spirit of God brings real repentance of course that's not all the Spirit does we see the Spirit bringing miracles and tongues and prophecy and all sorts of things in the book of Acts and of course later elsewhere Paul will teach us that the Spirit of God works in us Christ-like character as he bears in us the fruit of the Spirit but it makes sense to me and it makes sense of this story in Acts 19 I think to say that when we encounter God truly by his Spirit we will realize our own failures and our wrongdoings it's like if, if this is a bit crass but bear with me it's a little bit like getting dressed in the morning when it's still dark and we grope around for a pair of pants or something we think yeah that'll do we turn the light on and go no no they won't do those are in the dirty pile you know Uh, we need the light on to see and if you like when we encounter God by his spirit the, the light the floodlights come on and we see ourselves as we really are and that leads to repentance the spirit of God brings costly repentance we see here the name of Jesus 
lifted high and the proud cast down. Finally, nearly there, look at the end result of the real spirit being at work. And this should excite us, I think. Verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord, that's Luke's shorthand for the message of Jesus, spread widely and grew in power. So hear this, the spirit of God at work in us is not ultimately about us. I think that's helpful to be reminded of. It's not ultimately about our experience or, or whatever God might be doing in us. Actually, look at, look at what the, the, the kind of ultimate thing is. It's working in us so that the name of Jesus lift high, changes us to be more like him, he equips us and gifts us for his service so that, verse 20, the word gets out and spreads in power. That's what it's ultimately all about. Exactly as Jesus had promised, right at the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, that we would receive his spirit to equip us to witness to him. So that is what the work of the spirit is ultimately about. So a few questions before I finish for you to think about. I don't know how you feel this morning as you come to church. Some of us may feel weighed down. I don't know. Are you feeling weighed down this morning? If so, let the Spirit show you Jesus. Let him flood your heart that you would run to Jesus for forgiveness and know his smile. Wonder if you're, some of us, feeling aimless in life. Maybe you're not quite sure what you're meant to be doing, what the point of it all is. If that is the case, let the Spirit stir in your heart and show you your gifts, perhaps for making Jesus known where you are. I wonder if you are feeling weak for the battle ahead. We've heard of the spiritual battle, and that is the reality of the Christian life. If you are feeling weak for the battle ahead, well, let me encourage you with these words. These are the words that you probably know very well that Paul wrote to the very Christians who were being converted in the passage we just read. So this is in his letter to the Ephesians, the the church in Ephesus. Um, These famous words, if you're feeling weak, this will stir you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. That's a good thing to bear in mind if you're feeling weak. So as those words echo in your mind, just back briefly to Ipswich and my experience of the Holy Spirit. Was it a hoax? Was it real? Don't know. You can tell me. I'm not certain. But I do know that that year, God by his Spirit was at work in me because Jesus was lifted high. He convicted me of sin in my own life. He equipped me for service for the rest of my life. And he put a call on my life to bring others to know him. And that is the work of the Spirit in our lives. And let's pray for more of that this morning, shall we? Amen.